Well, we're going to take a break from our study of the book of Hebrews this morning. As Michael mentioned in his prayer, we're going to talk today about that favorite subject of giving money. You know, pastors need to address that subject from time to time, and so we're going to look at it today. I heard a story about a child who put a prayer request into the offering basket one Sunday morning, and the prayer request went like this. He said, she said, Dear Pastor, I'm sorry I can't leave more money in the plate, but my father didn't give me a raise in my allowance. Could you please have a sermon about a raise in my allowance? Love, Patty. So, Patty, if you're listening, uh, we're not going to have a sermon about a raise in your allowance. We're going to have a sermon about giving money, giving a portion of that allowance. But, you know, giving, the subject of giving money in church is kind of, kind of a sensitive topic, isn't it? I mean, I'm looking at a really big group of people, and we fall into a lot of different categories. Uh, I want to say a couple of things at the outset just before we look at the Bible. Uh, first of all, this whole subject may be very new to you. You may be a young Christian, a new Christian. Maybe you're looking at the Christian faith, and you've never even heard that Christians are challenged in the Bible to give a portion of their money to the work of Christ. Well, the fact is we are told in the Bible to contribute to the cause of Christ financially. Uh, So you'll learn a little bit more, and I hope you'll grow in your understanding of that uh, part of what it is to be a follower of Jesus. But there's another group in the church today that I'm concerned about, and that's those of you who are in financial distress. Uh, I have no doubt that there are financial problems represented in the room this morning. And so you're about to hear that uh, God is calling you to give money, and that presents something of a crisis in your your life and your thinking. What can I say to you? First of all, I would say that there is help available in this church for those of you who are in financial need. Uh, As I mentioned a moment ago, we have a deacon's fund, and if you would kindly talk to me after the service or to one of the people standing at the windows praying or to another pastor or elder or deacon or just someone who you know is a member, we'll connect you with our deacons and they can help you with your financial need. Also, we've got people who know how to handle money, how to do budgets, how to help people get out of debt. We teach classes on that uh, periodically. So talk to us about that. We, there's help available, in other words. And so I hope that you will not just walk out of here discouraged but rather that you'll know we have resources available to come to your assistance. So with that in mind, turn with me in the Bible to the book of Luke, if you will. Luke chapter 12. And if you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles underneath some of the chairs around you. Reach there and find a Bible and pull it out. And turn to page number 1108. 1108. We're going to look at a fairly long passage, but I'm going to break it up into pieces And it's in Luke 12, beginning at verse 13. I'm going to read verses 13 through 21, and then we will get to the rest of the passage eventually. Luke 12, beginning at verse 13. Hear the word of God. Someone in the crowd, and you'll learn about that in a little while, someone in the crowd said to him, that is Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But Jesus said to him, Man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist 
in the abundance of his possessions. And then he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat and drink merry and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. And I'd like you to do something different. Pray silently for yourself that you will hear clearly the word of God this morning and pray for someone near you, perhaps a family member, a a friend. Pray for someone else that we together will listen carefully to the word of God. Father, send your spirit, let him be our teacher, and we want to see Jesus more clearly, so that having seen Jesus more clearly and grasping his love more deeply into our hearts, the response might be a glad, overflowing spirit of generosity. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Some of you probably know the name Mel Fisher. If you are a Floridian, you definitely should know that name. He was a chicken farmer scratching out a living in California back in the 1950s when he decided to change careers and become a deep-sea treasure hunter. So in 1962, Mel Fisher moved his family to Florida to search for gold buried in sunken ships off the Florida coast. If you know his story, you know that for years, Mel and his sons searched the ocean floor Until finally in 1985, they found the mother load, a Spanish galleon that had sunk in 1622 off of Key West. And it was loaded with tons of gold and silver and gems estimated to be valued at over $450 million. Fisher and his family became multimillionaires. Fisher died of cancer in 1988, but do you know what kept him going throughout his lifetime? He had a single burning desire. Mel Fisher, as a kid, had read the book Treasure Island, and he had dreamed of the day, every day of his life, he dreamed of the day when he'd find chests of gold down at the bottom of the ocean. Mel Fisher had a motto. Do you know what it is? His motto, lifelong motto, today's the day. That motto summarized what got him up in the morning. Today's the day. Maybe I'll find that sunken treasure today. It was his all-consuming passion for buried treasure that drove Mel Fisher until the day he died. Yet I wonder if the moment he passed from this life into the next, the very first words he heard were, You fool. This very night, your soul is required of you. And the things you've found, all that silver, all that gold, whose will they be? 
Now, I don't know. I don't know Mel Fisher's heart. Perhaps he became a Christian somewhere along the way. Maybe he would not hear those words. But what if he did? Wouldn't that be so sad? A lifetime spent being a rich fool. Well, one day, John the Baptist was standing by the Jordan River. You read about this in John chapter 1. John the, John the Baptist was standing by the river, and he saw Jesus. And he said, Behold the Lamb of God. Well, standing near John the Baptist and Jesus were two men who would later become Jesus' disciples, Andrew and John. And they began to follow Jesus. And Jesus, knowing they were behind him, says in John 1, 38, turned around, saw them following him and said, what are you seeking? Today, Jesus is asking you and me that same question. What are you seeking? What is it you want in life? What's your buried treasure? What are you after? What is it that makes you want to say, maybe today's the day. Maybe today I'll finally arrive. Maybe it'll come what I've been hoping for all of my life. Maybe it's to retire. Maybe that's your sunken treasure. Maybe it's to get married. Perhaps it's to go on a vacation or get a promotion. Or get pregnant or be accepted into college or have a great looking boyfriend or girlfriend or move to another city or finally have a job you like or finally feel good again. What is it? What's your buried treasure? That word seek means to pursue or desire or search after. And Jesus is going to say later in this text, I'll get to it eventually, leave your Bibles open because I want us to go all the way to the end of this passage. Jesus is going to say in verse 31, seek. You want to seek something? You want to pursue something? You want to have a driving ambition? Seek the kingdom of God. It's the same word Jesus said to Andrew and John. Same Greek word. What are you seeking? Here in verse 31, seek the kingdom of God. What does it mean to seek the kingdom? That's one of those vague Christianese type of uh, phrases that we need to break down. Well, God's kingdom, the first thing you need to remember is that God's kingdom is not a place. It's a condition. The kingdom of God is his reign or his rule in your heart, in the hearts of people, and throughout the world. And so to seek God's kingdom means to focus your life on the advancement of the reign of God in your life and in the world. To seek the kingdom of God means to align your priorities with God's priorities. The way you spend your time, the way you spend your money, the way you treat other people, the relationships you have, how you make a living, the choices you make. Everything. In fact, I love what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 9. 2 Corinthians 5, 9 is a good summary of what it means to seek the kingdom. In that verse, he says, So whether we are at home or away, we make it our goal to please the Lord. That's a good definition of seeking the kingdom, isn't it? To make it your goal, 
wherever you are, whatever you're doing, work, school, at home, on vacation, to please the Lord. So here's what I want us to learn from this passage of Scripture this morning. First, I'm going to show you that there are two sins that keep us from seeking the kingdom. And then I want to show you one simple way to fight those sins and seek the kingdom. So two sins, one simple way. All right, let's dive into the text and see. First of all, what are these two sins that keep us from seeking the kingdom of God? That is aligning our priorities, aligning our interests with the priorities and interests of God. The first sin is what we read about earlier, covetousness, covetousness. Now, earlier in the chapter, let me give you the context. It says that Jesus is surrounded by a crowd of people. In fact, if you look up there in verse 1 of Luke 12, it's a huge crowd. It's thousands of people are pressing in on each other, listening to every word that comes out of Jesus' mouth. And in the midst of this huge crowd, a man steps over to Jesus and he says in verse 13, teacher, rabbi, Tell my brother to share. Parents, have you ever heard that statement? Tell my sister to share. My brother's not sharing. Well, that's basically what he says. Tell my brother to share. Tell him to split the inheritance with me. Now, we don't know the circumstances behind that, what the reasons were, and Jesus doesn't really so much as care because he says, man, who made me to be your judge in this situation? Why do you think your need is my mandate. Very stern words from Jesus, right? But then he turns from this man and speaks to the whole crowd. And he says in verse 15, take care. Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Now, another word for covetousness is greed. In fact, most of the versions of the Bible... Translate that word as greed, but they mean basically the same thing. It's a Greek word that literally means wanting more. Jesus is talking here about envious, restless desire for more. It's the need to have more than you already have. It's the idea that enough is never enough. I need this, I need that, I need more of something. Paul says in Colossians 3 verse 5, That greed is idolatry. It's turning a good thing into an ultimate thing. And because of greed, Colossians 3, 5 says that the wrath of God is coming. So we're talking about something really, really serious here. Covetousness is not just one of those little bitty things that we blow off. It is a serious sin that merits the wrath of God because it's idolatry. Is putting your trust and your love in anything other than God. So that's why Jesus says in verse 15, take care. You know what I like better than that? Take care. That sounds a little too mild to me. Take care. Take care of yourself. No, it's not that. It's beware. It's, the, it's, the, it's a word for watch out or to make it memorable to us. Words that rhyme, take heed of greed. You can remember that, right? Take heed of of greed is what Jesus says. And then he tells a story. Jesus was fond of telling stories. And he tells a story here that's one of the most memorable ones of them all. It's a story that we call the rich fool. Now, what's this man's problem? Why is Jesus so stern 
with this man. It's not because he was wealthy. Being wealthy is not a sin. There are a lot of godly rich people in the world. Nor is it wrong to make business plans, which is essentially what he's talking about here in this parable. Nor is it wrong to build buildings or raise barns. No, that's not why Jesus calls him a rich fool. I think you'll get it when you listen to the pronouns. Look again at verse 17. And let me read a few of those verses once again. Here's what this man says. He thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul. Do you get it? There's a reason all those first person pronouns are there. Because to this man, it's all about him. The essence of greed is the idea that it's all about me. I need more money, more gadgets, more clothes, more things. I need more dessert, more space. I want more attention. I need more Facebook friends. I need more success, more shoes, more music downloads. I mean, we could make a list a mile long of the things that we think we need more of. Something newer, faster, bigger, fancier, better, faster, cooler, whatever, to be happy. See, this man's life and so many of the lives of, of, of us and around us revolves around his own wants and his own desires, his own kingdom, we might say, instead of God's kingdom or the needs of other people. What is this? It's greed. It's serving self instead of others, and it keeps you from seeking God's kingdom. So that's sin number one. The other sin we're going to read about now in this text is worry. And it's in verses 22 through 31. So let me pick back up where we left off at verse 22. It says there that Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious. There's worry. Do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you'll put on. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being, here it is, anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If you then are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not, here's the word, seek what you're to eat and what you're to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. First sin that gets in the way of our seeking the kingdom is greed. The second one is worry or anxiety. St. Augustine said that fear, and fear is just another form of worry, 
is the response of the human heart when it's one thing is threatened. Do you get that? Fear is the response of the human heart when it's one thing is threatened. Why do you worry? You worry because your one thing, that thing about which you say, today's the day, maybe I'll get that treasure, maybe I'll have what I've always wanted. When that thing is threatened, that's when you worry. You worry about the economy because your financial security is threatened. You know, last weekend, Michael talked about functional saviors. If you were here for that sermon, functional saviors. Financial security is a functional savior for many people. It's what they look to for their security, for their fulfillment, for their reassurance and that all is well and so on. You worry about what's going on in Washington. Why? Because your health care is possibly threatened. You worry about your weight. Because if there's one thing that gives your life meaning, it's the way you look. And so you worry about that. You worry about the future. Because the thing that you need more than anything else, control, is threatened. On and on. See, these worries choke or stifle your desire for God's rule in your heart. In fact, the word English word worry comes from the German word vergen, which means to choke. And so worry chokes or stifles uh, our ability to order our priorities around the priorities of God and the kingdom. All right, so those are the two primary things that keep you from aligning your priorities with God and seeking the kingdom. One is greed, the other is worry. But guess what? There is a simple way to stab those sins in the heart and seek the kingdom of Jesus. There is help in the Bible. There is help through the work of the Holy Spirit. And that simple way is to give away your money. You can give away your money and in the process of doing so, you will be seeking the kingdom and putting those sins of greed and worry in the grave where they belong. Look with me at verses 32 and 33. Jesus says, fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. Jesus is saying here, give generously, give sacrificially, and you will be seeking the kingdom. You know, that's what the early Christians believed and they lived that way. I don't know if you've read the early chapters of the book of Acts lately, but they describe a group of Christians who sought the kingdom by giving away their stuff. It says in Acts chapter 2 that they sold their possessions and belongings and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. In Acts chapter 4, it says there was not a needy person among them. For those who were owners of land or houses sold them. Can you imagine selling your house? And it says they brought the proceeds and laid it down at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. What a countercultural way of viewing your possessions. What? My stuff? It's, it's yours. It belongs to the church. I'll gladly share my things 
that those who have need can have their needs supplied. Unfortunately, this spirit is so lacking in the American church of today. You know, only one-third to one-half of U.S. church members financially support their churches at all. And those who do, most of them do not tithe. Now, tithe, that word, it means one-tenth. This is not a sermon about tithing. We could do that some other time. A good case can be made that the tithe, the law of the tithe, still exists today. Uh, You should know that your pastors and their families tithe. And we believe that that is a good time-tested way of knowing what we should give to the cause of Christ. But very few uh, believers tithe. In fact, as a whole, Christians in America today give less than 3% of their income to the cause of Christ. It amounts to about $17 a week. That's the average donation in the offering plate of American Christians, $17 a week. Now, we do better than that here at UPC. But do you know $17 a week? Do you know that in America, Americans spend twice that on their dogs? Americans spend over three times that amount going out to eat? What's the deal? Why is this the case? It certainly is not that American Christians don't have enough money as a whole. Now, earlier I I spoke to those of you who are in financial distress, and we're not talking about that. But as a whole, most of us seem to be able to afford vacations and trips out to Disney World and cable TV and car payments and those type of things. What is the problem? The problem is many Christians are not seeking the kingdom. I want to say this gently. But you pay your pastors to, st- to say uncomfortable things. <laughs> Some of you give little or nothing to UPC. Now, I'm not talking about those of you who have just started attending. You're still kind of checking out church and stuff like that. But for those of you who have been attending, some of you give little or nothing to the church that is ministering to you in so many different ways. That's not right. You know, what, what many of us do is when we get money, many of us immediately, the first thought that comes to our head is, what do I want to do with it? Where do I want to go? What do I want to buy? with no thought at all about the needs of people around us, the needs of the church, or the needs of some gospel-based charity. I'll be honest. I fight greed and worry every single day. I want my money to be my money. You need to know that about me. It's only been by the grace of God that he's changing that heart of mine. But there's a deadness in here that sees money as something I can do something with without any, even scarcely a thought to the work of God, the kingdom and and the concerns that God has. You know, it's been estimated that if every follower of Jesus gave 10% of their income, that's the tithe, to missions, we could support as many as 2 million new missionaries. We could plant a church in every unreached people group in the world on only 0.03% of our income. Now, those are alarming statistics, but to be frank, statistics don't motivate me very much. I get guilty. I feel guilty when I hear statistics. 
So let me give you, instead of more and more statistics, I want to give you four gospel-centered incentives for giving away more of your stuff. I really believe that if we can get these incentives down into our belief system and begin to live by these things, we will see change happen in our lives and around us in the church today. First, gospel-centered incentive. I'd like you to think about the power of small sacrifices. Do you know, friends, do you know how much good you can do for our church and for our world by giving your money away? I don't think we really see it. But we can do so much good with sacrifice. Let's say, now I did this little experiment, and I'm not a mathematician, so you can shoot holes in it if you will, if you want to, but I did a little experiment, but it's just to sort of find out the power of a small sacrifice. Let's say that your household makes $40,000 a year. I just pulled that figure out of the air, 40000 a year. And let's say you gave 4% of it to UPC. Now, a lot of us make more than that, but I picked that as a conservative figure because, well, we have some college students in the church, and they kind of pull down the average a little bit. So I'm just saying $40,000 a year, you give 4% of that to UPC, that amounts to $1,600 a year or $133 a month or $30 a week. Okay, can you visualize that? That's 4% of your income if you make 40 grand. These, uh, so what if, here was my experiment, what if you increase that by just 1% of your income? You would be giving an additional $400 for the year. So now you're giving a total of $2,000 to the church. To do that, all you would need to do is increase your giving by less than $8 a week. That's about the cost of the manager special at Smashburger. I should know. You say to yourself, no, wait, Mike, that doesn't do anything. If I just, you know, eight bucks more a week, that's not going to accomplish a thing. But now we're talking about our whole church doing it. Let's say we all do that. We all made $40,000 a year and increased our giving from 4 to 5%. Now, thankfully... There are people in our church who make more than that and give more than that. Otherwise, we'd have to cut our budget by a lot. But it's just for the sake of illustration. Based on the number of households that we have here at UPC, it would mean an additional $140,000 a year coming into the church. Do you know what could be done with an additional $140,000? I asked a few people in our church. Samaritan Resource Center is... One of the ministries we support, it reaches out to the homeless community. For that amount of money, they could hire a janitor and an executive director and maybe start a thrift store where some of the homeless people around us could make a living and get back up on their feet financially. Thrive, Orlando, crisis pregnancy center over there on Colonial. $140,000 is almost their entire annual budget. Based on the numbers that they've been seeing, it would save 117 unborn babies and bring at least 17 people to Jesus Christ. Jeremy Martin, we prayed for Jeremy and his wife Angel earlier today. They are our missionaries in Uganda, members of our church. 
I wrote him an email. He said this, $140,000 would build 108 houses for widows and orphans and house up to 1,500 people. Or 60 orphans could get a free high school education. Or 5,600 refugees could be transported out of the conflict zone in South Sudan to the safety of a refugee settlement in Uganda. I asked David Bradley, who works for the Jesus Film here in Orlando, $140,000 would enable the planting of at least 100 new churches throughout the world and reach about 1.5 million people with the gospel. We could send our high school students to their summer camp called Elevate free of charge for the next 15 years. We could send a hundred married couples to the marriage retreat in September for the next five years free of charge. And it would buy over 6,000 copies of my book. I'm just saying, stop that smash burger meal every week. All, no, seriously, all because, all because you give up roughly the amount that it costs to eat at a hamburger restaurant once a week. What if you made it a goal? Now, let's get real now. Let's apply this stuff. What if you made it a goal to increase your giving by one or two percentage points a year? Maybe go from two to four percent by God's grace. Maybe from five to six percent, from eight to ten percent, from ten to twelve. It really is... In the grander scheme of things, small sacrifice. But what a powerful impact it would have. Wherever you are today with this whole subject, your money has massive potential for good when it's given away. Let's go to the second incentive. Why can you, why should you seek the kingdom? Because when you give, you not only bless others, you bless yourself. Look at verse 33. The second half of verse 33 of our text says, Jesus says, provide yourselves with money bags that don't grow old with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. Every dime you invest in the work of God is credited to your account in heaven. I don't understand that fully, but it's what the Bible says. Not only that, though, Giving your money away is good for you now, now in this life. Back in 2014, a couple of sociologists wrote a book called The Paradox of Generosity, Giving We Receive, Grasping We Lose. That's a great subtitle. They surveyed 2,000 people over a five-year period and tracked their spending and their lifestyle habits. And what they found among other things, was that people who are generous with their time and money have lower rates of depression and are more likely to be in excellent health than those who do not. Now, why are we surprised? Because didn't Jesus himself say in Acts 20, 35, it is more blessed to, what, give than to receive. You are happier, Jesus says, When you give, then when you don't. You get the blessing of being a partner with Jesus as he redeems the world. 
You get to trust Him and depend on Him to meet your needs, and He gets to provide for you in some amazing ways. Those are all great blessings. Incentive number three, why seek the kingdom? Because when you give, and you might not have ever thought of this, this to me is so encouraging. When you give, your passion for God and your sense of purpose in life increases. Your passion for God and your sense of purpose and meaning in life increases. Why do I say that? I say it because of the very last verse of our text, verse 34. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Now, you might expect that sentence to read the opposite way. You might want it to say something like, For where your heart is, there will your treasure be also. But that's not what Jesus says. He says, Where your treasure is, there will your heart be. What he's teaching is, is that your heart, that is your passion, your sense of purpose and meaning in life, your joy, those things follow your treasure. When you give your money, when you invest your treasure in God's kingdom, your heart actually grows more fond of, more attached to the kingdom and more dedicated to the Lord. Let me illustrate. My wife and I support a 10-year-old girl in the Philippines. We Just a little bit of money every month goes to Children International. Her name is Maria Stephanie Velasquez. She just turned 10 last week, celebrated her birthday. Well, you might remember that back at the end of December of last year, a typhoon hit the Philippines. And when the news of that typhoon came to my ears, I perked up because the Philippines are not just any old country anymore to me. That was not just any old typhoon. Why? Because I had a stake in the Philippines. I had put my treasure there. And a little piece of our heart lives in the Philippines with the name of that little 10-year-old girl written on it. See, my treasure, where my treasure is, that's where my heart went. I've heard people ask God to give them a heart for missions. I have some advice for you. Start supporting a missionary and you will develop a heart for missions. Because where your treasure is, your heart will follow. Fourth and finally... Why should you seek the kingdom? Why should we be generous? Why should we sell our stuff? Why should we give stuff away? Because you are already far richer than you think. With the stuff that really matters. Look at verse 32 once again. Jesus says, fear not, little flock. Isn't that a tender way to address us? Fear not, little flock. You don't have to lay up treasure for yourself like that greedy, rich fool I talked about earlier. You don't have to be anxious like the rest of the world, worrying about what you'll eat, what you'll wear, what's going to happen tomorrow. For it is, says Jesus, your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. The reason you can seek the kingdom is that the king has already made you a citizen of that kingdom. God searched and searched for you high and low like a sheep lost out on the hillside when you were lost and miserable. And when he found you, it's almost like he said, today's the day in that person's life. I have my possession in my family. I have found my treasure. That's what The Bible calls his people his treasured possession. You were buried under tons and tons of sin. And yet 
God searched for you as his treasure, sent his son to you to deliver you from the grip of the devil and claimed you as his own possession. You are wealthy beyond your imagination. And in just a little while, you will be with the triune God on the new earth. What does it say in 1 Peter 1, 4? You have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You know, being that we're that rich, when it comes to this subject of giving, we're asking the wrong question. Instead of asking, how much should I give? A better question is really, how much should I keep? Lord, I have so much. Way more than I need. God, take what is yours and build your kingdom. So I end where I began. What are you seeking? Where's your treasure? What matters to you the most? Is it to have plenty of good things laid up for many years so you can relax, eat, drink, and be merry? Or is it to align your priorities with God's priorities and seek the kingdom by giving your money away? Don't be a fool. Please, don't be a fool. Invest your life in serving others. Invest your money in blessing others. Be rich toward God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these wonderful, wonderful promises. Lord, the fact that you have promised to give all that we need and you have done so in amazing ways. So, Lord, it's like that hymn said that we sang earlier today. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, and my all.